And of this equity, Lord, we pray that you be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me read the Ten Commandments. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those people, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. Do the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the soldier that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors thus far concludes God's ten at least the, the, those words that he wrote with his finger on the two tablets on Mount Sinai and after that he wrote no more on those two tablets my friends in the teaching here that I want you to know for tonight at least is that uh, the moral law or some, it's commonly called referred to as the ten commandments this moral law of the Ten Commandments is to be understood uh, in several peculiar and distinguishing qualities. There's something very special, something very distinct about this as compared to all of the rest of Holy Scripture. Now, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, if, you have, if you have a study Bible or you have uh, some other notes, some margin notes, you will see that that's bolded. Of course, all those bolded chapter uh, partitions, they're not, they're not there in the Hebrew. So you might ask, why, this, why call these the Ten Commandments and pull them out and, and identify them as such? Well, because in other places, not in this chapter, uh, they are distinguished in that way. For instance, in Exodus 34, verse 28, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, and again, Deuteronomy 4, uh, 10, verse 4, this section of scripture is called the ten words or the ten things. And of course, <laughs> when you say words or pronouncements, things, uh, that's the var, that's the var uh, is the Hebrew word. It could mean generically anything, but in context, you see that these are imperatives, and so of course, the commandments. 
and the most, uh, I, I know I looked up the English Standard Version, that's how they call it, the Ten Commandments in these sections of Exodus 34, uh, 28, verse uh, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 13, and Deuteronomy 10, 4. So, so we have quite a presentation, don't we, in, in Mount Sinai, but uh, that whole presentation included other, other writings from Moses, such as the ceremonial law and the civil law of Israel, and yet the Lord, the Lord, of, uh, the, the Lord has distinguished these ten that went on the tablets, and these ten things, the ten words, ten commandments, from the rest. And uh, I hope it will become very apparent to you why that is the case as, as we continue in this series. All right. We have, what, seven points or seven qualities? And I think that, yeah, that I'm going to, I have to, I have to stop and say this is my, not my outline, this is not my notes. I found the reading uh, of John Calhoun there on the treatise of the law and gospel most useful. And so what I've done is I've gleaned some ideas uh, just to give you a flavor of the distinctiveness of this passage of scripture over all, over all the rest of the scriptures. And so uh, it's footnoted in my outline. I give him full credit. Uh, I hope he will not rise from the dead and condemn me, you know, for, for borrowing his notes and preaching. Uh, he did not preach it. He wrote it. It's the teaching. So it's still good. It's still my, it's still my preaching. It's not his preaching, but it's his notes. All right. Let's understand how this is a peculiar and distinguishing uh, passage having unique qualities. First of all, you know that not every part of the scriptures uh, uh, is of universal use. Uh, it doesn't pertain to Eskimos, for instance, to construct their houses uh, along the lines prescribed in the civil, uh, in the civil law of Israel with, with a parapet. It'd be very hard to uh, fix a, a parapet, you know, sort of a, uh, a railing around an igloo. And besides, Eskimos don't usually climb up on top of it. Not usually. usually not. And if they do, they slide down comfortably and land on snow, then they're going to get hurt or at all. So obviously, some portions of God's word of law, some portions of the law are not universal. All of the ceremonial law ceases with Christ and is no longer useful uh, to the nations. And so you have dietary laws, you have laws uh, prescribing uh, who can marry who, who cannot marry who, things like that. Festival days, all manner of, 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 of writings that are not universal. But the distinction quality of this passage is that this writing, these 17 verses, are universal. What does it mean to be universal? It means that it, it, the, the teaching or its, its command, its, uh, its import, extends to every man uh, in every place. North Pole, South Pole, East and West, in every age, regardless of the progress of technology, the social mores, fads. Uh, some, some, some ages are extremely sensual. Uh, some ages are uh, extremely violent. Some ages are uh, prone to being highly insulated. Others make the mistake of being spendthrift and uh, have no, no notion of self-control. No, but the law of God, the moral law, is useful in every place, in every age, and in every condition. We can never, ever, as long as we are in this flesh, in the image of God, even fallen, we should never assume that the law, the law of God has no bearing 
on our place, on our person, in our circumstances. And we should never think that this condition we're, we're facing here, we have no guidance, not even in general terms, from the law of God. That would be a mistake. The moral law is universal. And everywhere man in God's image goes, he has a law in him, reminding him of that, the law of conscience. Anyway, the moral law is universal because it extends to every inclination, every thought, every word, every action. For that, uh, I, I will quote Psalm 119, verse 96. The psalmist says, uh, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandments, your commandment is exceedingly, exceedingly broad. Uh, some, some, some rules apply to particular situations. And uh, while you may, for instance, have rules about how to play a, a piece of music uh, to perfection, no perfect, they say, or, or to sing a piece or to memorize a poem, no perfect. That is, a, that is a perfection in his But the commandment of the Lord taken as a whole knows no bounds. And uh, it will bound and, it, and it'll govern every inclination, every thought, uh, every word, and every action. The moral law is universal as summed up in the Ten Commandments. But, as I said before and alluded to before, uh, this passage of Scripture governs and extends to all, throughout all the Word of God. And not merely from Exodus chapter 20 going forward. All right? This is a summary of that moral law, which is intrinsic to human nature as he is made in the image of God. And so, therefore, it is intrinsic to the moral perfection of God in his essence, not in his will, but in his essence. Uh, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to have to miss it. We're going to need to speak to, uh, about this. Uh, these distinctions, and you'll pick up some vocabulary, I'm pretty sure. But um, it, it is right to say that uh, if you want to see the Ten Commandments in action, uh, if someone asks, well, well where, where do you get all this? Point someplace where you will see the Ten Commandments in action. Uh, just open almost any page, read, read about a page or two, I don't know, except for some long genealogies or and some narrative, historical narratives in the Bible, you'll always find uh, the Ten Commandments and their influence, the government. So everything, um, and, and the thing that you have to remember, and I'll cover this more specifically, with the way that we are to understand uh, this commandment. And if we understand it properly, well, then we will see it to perfection. Otherwise, we'll see it as uh, kind of limited in its scope, and some things just don't fall into those. Okay. Uh, everything that God requires in these Ten Commandments, or these Ten Things, is contained as a head or as a summary uh, in one or more commandments. In other words, first of all, this is a summary and not an exhaustive list of every command that God would have you, uh, would have you obey. And the other thing is, uh, there are uh, commandments that, that overlap. Uh, for instance, uh, the commandment not to commit adultery. You might like look at a woman and, and, and feel some kind of sexual desire, but, uh, but uh, in that commandment, as you transgress the seventh commandment, you will also transgress the tenth commandment. In fact, in every commandment, once you set your heart desire to transgress, you necessarily broken the, the, the leading head commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, as well as number 10, 
You must necessarily break 10 before you break out and transgress all the others. All right, uh, we'll, we'll get this in a second. But it, it's, it's universal because all of this has that feature. Uh, there's even, as I, as I say in this last point, uh, a feature of uh, duplication, uh, <laughs> as, as it were. It, it, it so wants, it, the law so wants and demands obedience that as, um, uh, as a secondary commandment, the first one you transgress doesn't catch you, the second one will. That's why, by the way, Paul had such difficulty. Uh, he thought he was doing fine externally by keeping the heads of the commandments external. But in Romans he says, now when I found the commandment that came to me and he found it, the commandment that said, thou shall not covet, the internal nature, uh, the duplicity, the duplication of the commandment as it is reflected in sin, expressing itself in our subjective nature, that meant him. And therefore he knew he was a sinner. Well, then he could turn to Christ. And that's, that's a mighty, mighty uh, purpose of the law. The moral law, then, is, is that way, is, is universal. The second point, and by the way, I'm going to preach uh, three or four points tonight. Uh, because I, I, want us, I want us to understand, and I don't, want to, I don't want to overpower you. So I'll stop after about the third or fourth point, depending on, on how things go. The, the law, moral law is universal, the moral law is, is perfect, and, uh, well, we don't need to think very hard because it, Psalm 19 verse 7 says the, Lord, the, the, law, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now, how is it that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul? Not every law restores the soul. Uh, the civil law will not necessarily restore the soul, but the moral law uh, because it, it speaks to God's nature and His perfection, will necessarily convict and stop the sinner, and his conscience will be will be addressed and burdened by it. And so, therefore, and uh, the Psalter is uh, there again, assuming that it's a worshiper here who's using the psalm in an act of worship, and in that use of the law, that law will turn him to God because he feels the pressure of it and he's afraid to displease God and so he converts to God. Not that the law itself does it, the law has no power to convert anything, but um, incidentally or as you say, accidentally circumstantially, the law will always convert the, uh, the, the, the pious sinner uh, who is seeking God because the spirit of God is in it and the spirit of God will always work with the law. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Don't take my word for it, read Psalm 19 and verse 7. Now the law, the moral law binds the whole man and every man to complete obedience forever. The perfect obedience forever. It is a binding. Uh, it is, it, the and I will say it this way so you will understand its opposite. The gospel, when you become a Christian, you are not loosed from keeping the moral law of God. You are still bound to the moral law of God, but not in the form of a covenant of works. No, as a, as a form of a covenant of works, you have died to the law. 
That law as a covenant you have was nailed to the cross and you're dead to it. Just as Christ died, you died in Christ. You're no longer under law. But as a rule of life for the Christian, as a, a rule that is completely compatible uh, with the, the spirits leading in your life and compatible with that law that is in Christ, the human body of Christ that is ascended into heaven, to that glorified body belongs these attributes of perfect moral obedience, and you in union with the Holy Spirit are necessarily bound to Christ and to that law in Christ. And so it is a heinous mistake to dismiss the law. It, 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 well, and I'll get to that, I'll, I'll reiterate that more and more. But there is a binding. And even in our shorter catechism, which we teach to the children, and the shorter catechism says, because God is our is God, because God is the Lord and our God, but more importantly, our Redeemer, we are bound to keep all of his commandments as his people. We are bound. And that should be in the that should be in the memory of every single child and those who have taught their children. It binds the whole man, and it binds every man, not just a Christian man, not, not just those who can name the Ten Commandments. You're still responsible for the speed limit up and down Great Falls Drive, even though you don't know. You're not sure if it's 35, you don't know, you're not sure if it's 20, but the law books know what that is, and you are certainly bound, and the police will remind you. Binds the whole man and every man to complete obedience, not partial obedience. And not only will it, will it be uh, perfect obedience, but it bounds the obedience of every man unto perfection forever. Because if this is the nature of, if the law of God in man is fully compatible with his being, it is certainly fully compatible with his recreation in Christ, his regenerate new nature. And that nature is carried forward into, uh, into heaven forever. And so he's still bound as a man to the law of God, even as the angels are bound. But we'll get into angels later, I think. All right? So <laughs> uh, let me just remind you that there is, there is more than just a, a slight instinct in fallen nature to loose the cords of the Lord. Psalm 2. The wicked say on every side, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want the rule of Messiah. As for me, I place my son upon Zion, my holy hill. But every fiber of our fallen nature wants to break that, that binding. That's the binding that God has on every flesh. It's only the Christian that can say, thy will be done on earth as it is in, angel, in heaven. And that's what, that's what we say, the, the, the angels are, are bound in it and they deliver holy angels to, to the utmost perfection of every duty. It forbids the, the least degree, the slightest beginnings of sin. Matthew 5, 21, oh, the Sermon on Mount is famous for that, I don't have to read extensively. Uh, Jesus here in chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said of old, 
you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother. You see? That's what I mean by the, the commandment head is thou shalt not murder. But under that, the head being the most extreme manifestation of that particular species of sin, is contained a whole list of subspecies of sins. Anger is kin to murder. Okay? Um, and so, the, uh, lust, you have said you should not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. If maybe some friend says, well, you know, you can window shop, you shouldn't take. Now, that's, that's not right. You don't have any license to lust at the window dresser. Someone can look at like on the street. You don't have license to do that. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it away. But what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching nothing new. He's just, he's just, he's just explaining to us uh, in commentary form what the law is already uh, teaching. Okay. Now, James 2, uh, in verse 10, we have another statement uh, about the comprehensiveness of this law for, uh, and, uh, and the, the forbidding of any, any degree. Uh, James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, what this James is speaking of it is, I'm sure in his day, the Christian church still had a wholesome view of the Ten Commandments. And yet he says, if, if one fails at any point of, of what God is requiring in that, he breaks all of it. How much worse, then, do we have today where churches not only do not keep the Ten wholesomely as a list, but they will take out one or two that is no longer binding. We have not merely broken the whole law and become guilty of all, but we, we have despised the law as a whole. If you fail the whole law by failing the least degree of one commandment, how much worse so have you dismissed the whole law when you've got two or three huge pockets missing from your directory of duty to the Lord in, in our Christian churches today? And I am, I am very sure that this is now codified, if not in uh, the creeds and confessions of even Reformed churches, at least in the minds of so many ministers and elders. We need, we need a clear vision of what this thing teaches. And to help us, I've I, I got a, a handout here, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism number 99. I will not explain it, just to read it, because this is a unique portion of Scripture. And the Westminster Divines thought so and needed a special treatment so that we might understand the uniqueness of this, the distinguishing qualities of these 17 verses, uh, lest we trip up and not really see uh, the importance of it. All right, and that's why they wrote in the larger catechism, question 99, what rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Again, my friends, the Word of God does nothing, nothing in your lives unless you understand the Word of God. Unless you understand what it's teaching, you will not benefit at all. It is only in the right understanding and then wisely applying that law that you begin to please God properly. All right.
What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? All right, the answer is for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. I'm just going to go read through it. The law is perfect, binding everyone to full conformity in the whole land unto the righteousness of earth, unto the entire beings forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. Now, don't you know that if the churches were preaching this, the people would either be driven mad as they, did, as they were in Jonathan Edwards' congregation when he preached the law, or they would certainly convert and come to Christ. But as it is, the churches go easy because there's, I don't know why. I, you fill in the gap, I don't know why. But the rigor of the Ten Commandments is in full force and will always be in full force. The commandment then in number two is that the Ten Commandments are spiritual, and so they reach the understanding, the will, and the affections, all of the power of the soul, as well as our words, works, and gestures. Roll into the eyes. Some people don't like preaching, they, they fall down in the pew and just look at their heads. They're just signaling all the friends, this is abhorrent preaching. This is just terrible. How can I stomach this? Don't you see? I can see all this stuff. Rolling of the eyes. Hiding behind a column. The people hide. It's crazy. That one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. It's not, we're not going to pit one commandment after the other. Except I will say the first tablet, being uh, directed uh, of obedience to God, which is, he's the supreme, most, lo most loving, most good, most perfect. Those take priority, if there should be any clash, over the second. So when Jesus says, he who loves mother and father more than me, is not worthy of me. Uh, and, and so there is a case where there's a clash, it's resolved by giving more weight to the first table. But again, my friends, which of your even reformed churches are so adamant that we give God proper spiritual service according to the regular principle of worship where the only thing we may give God in worship is what he's asked for and nothing else in the New Testament? I, I, cannot, I cannot fathom why we have more respect for the last six commandments concerning our neighbors, men and women, and have no regard for the law giver himself in the first four. Fourth point is, as a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. Where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. Where a promise is annexed, such as, on your father and mother, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. You'll live long by honoring your parents. When that promise is there, the contrary threatening is included. If you don't know your parents, you can count on something. Generally speaking, you can have a short life. That's what he's saying. That's what he's threatening. He may not exact it. He may not, he may not execute that judgment in your life. But he would be just to do so. If he were to carry out the sentence to the full extension of uh, extent of the law. And where a threatening is next, if you heed the threat, a promise of peace with God. Of joyful God, uh, of joy with God, of His affirming you and blessing you is also included. 
So that's a very important point. And you can see how these commands are, are in extremely short, pithy form, but there's much more to them. Number six, what God forbids is not any time to be God. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But when the commands are the positive, uh, is always our duty. Honor your father and your mother. Okay? He's not, he's not saying, uh, he's not saying always honor. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let me run you back up. What God forbids cannot be ever done. What he commands as positive is to be done when it is appropriate. Such as honoring your father and mother, but in case your father and mother gives you a command that is unholy, uh, that positive commandment may be ignored. It is not of the Lord. Um, I'll go on and say that number seven, what is forbidden command to ourselves, that we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others uh, according to their duties and their places. That means that Nehemiah, he's concerned that the Jews keep the Sabbath in Jerusalem. And so he uh, keeps the Jewish merchants out, but he's also keeping out the nations, the pagan, uh, the heathen uh, merchants, uh, because this law is universal. And if it's good for you, it's good for everyone. It's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. All right? So if you uh, are convicted that the best thing we must do is to take advantage of the Lord's day and draw near to God as he's opened his arms all day long. He has opened his, he has opened his arms to a, a stiff night of wicked people. But some people do come. And he's pleased to bless them and pleased to speak with them and pleased to commune with them uh, in, in the congregation of the Lord. Well, if that is goodness to us, then we would want to extend that same privilege and that same opportunity to others. So we do not employ others. We do not go to Starbucks. We do not go to H-E-B unless, of course, you know, we're, we're dying. I mean, we've got low blood sugar, we're diabetic, we need food, it's an emergency. We need a Band-Aid or something, you know. Yeah, okay. But uh, for the most part, remember, if it's good for you, it's not good for you because you're a Christian. <laughs> it's, it's good for you because you're a, a man or, or a woman. Because you're in the image of God, and this is, we're talking about moral law. And, uh, uh, and that is to say, what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places to be helpful to them, take heed of partaking with others of what is forbidden. And so when we take in members, we say, you know, you promised them to help this child uh, when we baptize, or you, you promised to help these families along. Yes, because they should be doing whatever the Lord uh, is requiring of them in the moral law. And so we want to help them along. Now, um, with the commandments necessarily attached to the commandments, is the penal sanction, the curse of not keeping the commandment to the slightest degree. The, a person who's under the covenant of works is definitely under that curse. No Christian is threatened with the curse of that law should he fail the commandment. A Christian, if he is indeed a Christian, is warned of discipline, of God's chastening. And sometimes those who are chastened from the Lord may wish they were dead. But 
the curse of the law in the form of our covenant of works takes on takes on that threat always. And that, that needs to be that needs to be said and preached. Because in every congregation we have a missed group. We certainly have saints. But we may and often do, and it's quite possible that we have people that are not yet regenerate. And they need to be reminded of the weight of guilt and the threat, the awful threat of a full annihilation of hell and condemnation unless they turn and find the Savior. But if a sin is, is remitted, then the curse is lifted and never will be taken. If the Lord is ever remitted or forgiven, covered any one of your sins, he will continue to do so. And you are not under the threat of a curse. Now, understood in these ways, then no mere man can attain the righteousness of the law. But that needs, that needs to be not only preached, but that needs to be applied in such a manner that men and women, even boys and girls, feel it. They need to feel and, exa- and exhaust themselves with any, of any hope at all. And the sooner they do that, the sooner they will enter in a state of blessedness, a, a, a peace with God and reconciliation with God, because Christ as the end of the law to those who believe. But the law itself is meant to stop every mouth, to, to cease the man's great boasting of merit before the Lord. And that is exactly what Romans 3 uh, and verse 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no man or no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right. Nothing must be added to this law. By way of precept, nothing must be taken away. That's clear from Deuteronomy 4. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God that I command you. This is one of the greatest reasons for this, that the Jews stumbled at Christ's teaching, they added traditions. And the traditions were not necessary, uh, good and necessary consequences, not good and necessary derivatives, not logical derivatives of what God is commanding. They added unnecessary, in fact, they added commandments that if a man uh, apply himself nicely and give study to them, he may just keep it. They may just keep those man, those man machine commandments and then take a little boasting in them. But that's not what the purpose of the law is, my friends. Nothing must be added. Nothing must be taken away. In that sense, the whole Bible is, as it were, a law because the book of Revelation ends on that same note. <laughs> you know, if any man removes anything here, then God will remove from him, you know, the, the rewards from the city. And if he add, he will add them to the plays written in this book. So in other words, when the Jews call this Torah law, it has a general use because the law governs everything. Do you understand? The law governs everything and magnifies the gospel. And the gospel magnifies everything of God and also honors the law. We must never pit one against the other except in this one detail. In our moment of justification, our merit uh, in the form of a law has nothing to do 
with how we are accepting it before God. But in every other thing, the law helps us in every way, even under uh, the dispensation of the gospel, as the law is in Christ, as the law giver, Christ himself is our prophet and, uh, and leader. Okay. And this is my final point here, and I'll stop here tonight, because I want to be nice to you people. You won't come back, because this stuff, this stuff is heavy. We need some heavy corrections uh, to the prevailing, and I will say minority, greatly, greatly, grossly minority opinion of churches in today with respect to the whole history of the Christian church. We are at a point where we have so flattered ourselves somehow uh, in modernity that we are so superior to everyone that, of the ancients and everyone that came before us that we have no idea anymore, no, no, no real consensus, practical consensus as to what to do with the moral law. And that is a, a, a ruling consensus, huge majority, huge majority consensus in all churches but began to slip away and dissipate at the beginning of the, uh, the end of the 19th century. And the apostasy continues. The apostasy continues. I say that this law then is so perfect that it is sufficient as a rule of life for Jesus himself. Okay? If Jesus had despised this law, he as the divine son of God could have, well, he could have said this is wrong, he, he, would not, he would not have obeyed, but he, he obeyed in every way. And he obeyed truly. He, he obeyed powerfully. He, he obeyed from the heart. Gave a perfect, perfect service to God as, as, the, as the most humble servant. And he, and he was born under the law, which means that this law was perfectly compatible with his perfect human nature. And we need to respect that. Because we have no other union but with that man, Jesus. And if that man loved that law, then we who are in union with him, there's something mighty wrong if we are not. And by way of application, you just say this, and I'll stop at this second point. Because I, 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 want, I, want, to, I want to spend some time here and I want to be free enough to comment uh, and make, and make, uh, make application words needed. What we need to do here is to be aware of two things. And, and I, I credit uh, James Henry Thornwell for this, for this presentation. He says that Christ crucified between two themes. That's, that's the paradigm in offices. Well, what we want to do is be with Christ crucified. We want to be in union with him in his death, in his obedience, his active obedience, and, uh, and obeying all the law of God, his passive obedience, uh, and suffering all that the prophets and the law required, the ceremonial law, the Lamb of God, uh, of all the feasts, all the pictures of it, both his uh, act of obedience and this moral law, the passive obedience and the ceremonial law, and other things depicting his passion, his suffering. Okay, Christ is already in the paradigm. On one side is a thief, and he's the legalist. And he'll say, it's fine, but Christ did not do everything for me. I must do something that Christ did not do for me. That's the legalist. He is looking to, uh, he's looking to add something or take something away from that perfect law uh, so that he might boast in some degree, in some, in some, in some way, that Christ was not the, the, 
the full uh, uh, and uh, absolutely perfect requisite for redemption. That nothing really happened at the cross. The, 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 the transaction uh, of Christ really made redemption possible, but not secured it for him. He was not redeemed in that body of the dying Christ when, when God uh, spilled his blood. So the legalist will say, no, Christ did not die for me. And on his other side, there's, there's the antinomian. That is to say, one you might call him the libertine, one who doesn't like law. And he'll say, Christ died, sure, but he does nothing in me. I has, his work and his death is, has nothing to do with what I am because that death causes no difference in my person. So he's free because he figures, well, he's dead to the law and now whatever Christ is has nothing to do with him keeping the law. That is an antinomian. It's a Christological error. The Christological error is that he thinks he has no union in that dead Christ who's hanging there to his left or to his right. But, you, but, but my brothers, what I want you to see clearly is that the gospel and the law are in every way compatible and helpful to the Christian if we understand it in this way. Every way compatible. Christ certainly died and is a sufficient sacrifice fulfilling the law to everyone who believes. And Christ certainly died and he is the sanctifying and living Christ now uh, by his spirit mortifying our flesh and giving us liberty it might serve the god uh, serve the lord in the goodness uh, of the law in the spirit as it agrees in the spirit as we walk in the spirit so that's that's my final application of course and we'll get into more we'll, we'll get into the spirituality of the law we'll get into other things uh next next time i'm up here uh lord willing but for now uh, look over these notes uh, read over, if you would, the, the larger catechism, and hopefully you'll be with David Ben able to say, you know, I've seen a, a limit to perfection in all things, but your command, Lord, is exceedingly broad. And begin to see as you, as you go through the Bible reading, see where law is, is applicable to so many, so many situations in your life, or even in the, the Chronicles of, of the New Testament, the Book of Acts. How are Paul and Silas going to behave here? What's Barnabas going to do in Antioch, etc.? What's the church in Jerusalem going to be thinking about? They go back, my friends, to the moral, the moral law. Not necessarily the ceremonial law, the civil law. It's the moral law. And that, my friends, is the foundation. It's sure, and it's a help. Again, of itself, it has no power to sanctify. But in the hands of Christ and by his spirit, it has all power. An infallible, an infallible rule uh, for your faith and practice. Let's pray. Lord, now as we depart and pray, that we give, would give us uh, humble spirits. There is something in us, Lord, that does not want to be bound by anything. But that is a demonic spirit. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we were slaves to sin before we were converted, now we would be slaves to righteousness to Christ, and with Paul, even go to the extent of saying we're nothing but the bondservants of God and the servants of the servants of God. 
Grant us, Lord, uh, this spirit, for this spirit will be freedom and joy and cheerfulness to us. And it will be a blessing and will please you highly as we trust in you for all of its increase. And now may the Lord be blessed to find fruit in his vineyard according to your whole word in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our last anthem. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee.